Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's sein Rhythmus, als gäb sein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Komm dir entgegen. Hello and welcome to Gegenpressing, the Bundesliga Podcast. I'm Manu Feit. He's Stefan Bienkowski and Stefan, we're joined once again uh, by Sepp Stafford Bloor uh, from The Athletic. Sepp, um, guests first, how are you doing? Doing good, Manny. Thank you very, very much for having me back. <laughs> It's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, I assume things are great in Hamburg. You still are hoping for a unlikely promotion, I assume. I'm hoping for a double promotion, actually, uh, looking at the wider Bundesliga. <laughs> Hamburg 1-2, the capital city of this wider Bundesliga is Hamburg now. So, uh, right. yeah, yeah, we, we're all doing well in the north. Not to mention, uh, not to mention, Seb, your third team, uh, Shakhtar Donetsk uh, in the Champions League, of course. Exactly, our adopted team for the season. I went to walk along to, uh, to watch them at the Volkspark. Uh, Last week, the week before last, sorry. And uh, yeah, it's really, really, really uplifting experience. 50,000 people, 50,000 tickets sold for that game, um, which was not like a harsh foul match. And the Volkspark was stripped of some of its more familiar aspects and its pyro and its um, a lot of its choreo. But um, a really uplifting experience to go and, to go and watch the public rally around Shaktar. It's great. It really was great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's like, We maybe at one point have to do like a deep dive into all of this, but I think it's quite this quite telling on a lot of fronts. A, you know, great support for Ukraine still, but also the fact that how hungry Hamburg is for just you know top class football, Champions League football. I think that that is the main takeaway here. I. Well, I, I, I was having a conversation over my garden fence with my brother-in-law, who's a big Haasfau fan, and he was like, yeah, I mean, it counts, doesn't it? Like, hearing the Champions League anthem in the Volkspark, that's 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 enough. That's kind of like Haasfau playing in it. I was like, kind of, kind of like yeah. it. But uh, yeah, everyone, everyone had a pretty good time. It yeah. must have been, uh, there must have been a strategic plan in there. They thought, right, which city in Germany is the most starved of <laughs> success? And it's either Hamburg or Gelsenkirchen. Um, and I know which city I would pick if I had to spend a season at one of them. So, <laughs> yeah, damn <laughs> right, right, damn right. Nothing, yeah, ha, ha, exactly that. Nothing against Gelsen Kirken, but Hamburg wins that hands down. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great, and it's great to see loads and loads of Ukrainian people at the game as well. It wasn't just Hartbar fans um, and locals. It's a lot of um, obviously because over a million Ukrainians have moved to Germany since the um, the war of aggression began, and. Um, Yeah, a lot of people there, a lot of Ukrainian flags, and really, really nice atmosphere, and a lot of people feeling at home, which is which is great. Yeah, yeah, that it's really awesome. Um, but guys, we have lots, lots of Bundesliga football to discuss this week, um, and we should probably jump into it right after this break. This episode of the Gegenpressing Podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Football is back. And BetOnline is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with all the up-to-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game mods, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with BetOnline's real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. From week one all the way to college football playoff and Super Bowl, BetOnline gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BELIEF, that is B-L-E-A-V, BELIEF, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. So yeah, Stefan, um, the, the big game on Friday, where I mean, Bundesliga kicked off, <laughs> pretty big bang, I would say. Um, seems like a lifetime away, to be honest with you. Um, but you wrote about about Hoffenheim um, ahead of this match day. Uh, they they go to Dortmund, and um, 
I thought this was actually a really interesting fixture where Dortmund heavily relied on on some of the older stars to to really get a result here. The three one probably a little bit more decisive than the actual game. What was your takeaways here from this match? Yeah, I thought it was a great uh, fixture to have to kind of kick off the weekend's football. And it was a really evenly contested match. Uh, going into the game, we talked about uh, Hoffenheim. I wrote a newsletter on how well they were doing. Um, and I think more than anything else, they were just a very astute attacking side. And I thought for much of the game was a very evenly contested con- uh, well, contest. Obviously, um, on the, you know, someone was just kind of flicking through the scores. They'd say 3-1 and assume Dortmund kind of maybe strolled this one, but it certainly wasn't the case. And, you know, obviously that was, I mean, I think the best way to put it into context was that Dortmund were a goal down, or sorry, a man down, and it was in the fifth minute of injury time where Rearson scored what could only be described as like the equivalent of an, an NFL. I can't remember who, I, I wish I could attribute, I think it was maybe Kevin Hatchard. Uh, on Twitter, who basically said it was the equivalent of when you see, like, in the Super Bowl um, or just any NFL game, when they kick off their field kick, I don't even know what it's called, uh, and the opposing team basically convert that with a single run. It was basically that with Rearson. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. It was a really interesting game. I thought there's some interesting kind of things that, you know, um, Dortmund fans probably picked up on, and there's probably quite a lot that they can take a lot of kind of confidence from. Um, you know, Full Krug again kind of looked like he was kind of fitting in more and more in that Dortmund attack. Um, he scored a tremendous goal after Jonathan Brooks really helpfully just kind of set him up for a goal from a moment when both teams really were neck and neck with each other. Um, Brooks just basically passed the ball to Full Krug in the box and helped him score. Um, of course, Matt Swimbles tried his best to equal the scoring, <laughs> which was just a good kind of, what, 10-minute section that kind of maybe summed up some of the defending that we're used to in German football at times. Um, but yeah, I'll jump back in with um, some kind of tactical things that I noticed, but I'll I'll let I'll take a breath and let Seb jump in here and see what he thought. I think unconvincing. I mean, uh, looking at looking at it from a, from a Dortmund perspective, I'm still really concerned about the lack of chemistry. I think the last time I came on, we, we talked about it. It's like, Dortmund, if you go back a decade, like the hero player for Dortmund was the system. And over the years, with each passing year, in fact, it's become more and more about the individual players. And now there are fewer and fewer of those who are really, really exciting. So I'd say within this side now, Brandt's the only one who I'm, I'm really interested in watching. Like I, I think there are good players on that side too, but there's just so much. I think what troubles me is that every Dortmund performance I see is a little bit different now. There's nothing familiar about it. I don't go, I don't go into a Dortmund game knowing what I'm about to see, and that's quite a strange feeling. Like you, uh, you talk about it sort of, it's a bit of an overused word, but teams having brands, and I suppose I mean we'll come on to Bayern later, but I suppose that's a little bit true of them as well at the moment. Um, but you don't get the feeling that, I, for instance, you know, when you sit down and watch a Leipzig game, I know what to expect because I, I know what the sort of the parameters of their football are. Whereas Dortmund, I've got no idea. I, I don't know if I'm being unfair in that, but that is how it feels. Yeah, it's actually an interesting point because when we had Matt Ford on the show uh, last week, um, we actually, three of us said, you know, can anyone explain what Dortmund's system is? And the three of us couldn't. And I think that's kind of the really interesting thing about Dortmund right now. Obviously, Terzic is really struggling to um, create a system, create a tactic. You know, there's we've been discussing with the subscribers for the last couple of weeks that it's, it's almost as if he's actually trying to revert to some kind of very more pragmatic defensive system. Um, you know, I completely agree with you that, you know, Dortmund haven't exactly been encouraging. The only thing I would say is that, and it's maybe a bit of a cliche to say that, you know, um, they're still undefeated in the league. Uh, they're still, you know, level on points with Bayern. Um, of course, they've had easier games, but I think this game and the Wolfsburg match in particular kind of for two potential banana skins, which they could have really easily um, slipped up on. And... I kind of have to give Terzic credit for the sense that yes, he's you know he's he's 
he's a, he, his team don't really seem to have any consistency right now, but I think that's also because he's kind of frantically trying to experiment and play different players in different positions. Um, perhaps the most obvious one in this game was the fact that Ozchan again started over Emery Chan. And I think that's a big move from Terzic because obviously Chan was a player who was potentially going to leave in the summer, but then Dortmund doubled down and offered him a new contract, made him club captain. And, you know, I think maybe a less courageous head coach would have maybe stuck with Chan through thick and thin, but Terzic has obviously said, look, this isn't working. I'm going to try and play Nem Chan and Oz Chan together. And, like, I don't think either of those players are world beaters, but I think they offered a bit more composure, perhaps, than we've seen in recent weeks. So, you know, I'm always quite critical of Terzic, but over these last kind of couple of weeks, I have been kind of willing to give him a degree of credit because he is trying different systems, he's trying different tactics, and... I don't know, Manu, I guess you could maybe argue that, you know, they're undefeated and while they're not playing well, it's still a lot better than they did last season at this point, I suppose. Yeah, no, that that is a really good point that you're making here. I mean, the the, the, the means, like, the results justify the means, right? Um, and I think you you see that here quite clearly. And I think it, when I looked at the, the starting lineup, I actually thought it was really, really interesting that uh, Emil Shan wasn't starting. Um, and that is after a summer where they made quite a big point of strengthening Shan's position, right? Um, going as far as turning down, signing Edson Alvarez because they were worried about what it would do to, or, well, not they, Terzic was worried about what it would do to the hierarchy within the squad, right? And I think we all said in the show that redoing that transfer could long term turn out to be a mistake um, and it's kind of like an admission of guilt by Terzic the fact that now he's not playing I thought that was really really telling and the other aspect that I thought was really fascinating and I'm really curious what you guys think about this too was that Marco Royce is all of a sudden the charismatic number 10 again. And I think everyone that you talked to, including Mark Royce, was that like this is going to be his swan song, right? Like that he's going to see out his career at Dortmund, maybe have one final run at the title, but really be a player that comes in and, and rescues the team, um, but not necessarily doing it from the start. But, you know, he was the one who scored the, the, the second goal just before half time. He was the clutch player. Like, yes, Rearson makes it 3-1 in the end, but the game winner will go down for Marco Reus. And that is, I find, hugely fascinating that this team, that the hope that some players would make a next step, and one of them is Gio Reyna, right, still relies on their former captain to basically lead this team. And that is, in, in some ways, also like a result of their transfer window, right? In the summer, where they basically failed to sign a proper Jude Bellingham replacement. And essentially now, a 34-year-old Marco Royce has to be the guy that does it for them. And uh, I, I mean, it's not even sure that he's going to be here, even throughout the end of the season, because he's eyeing a move to, to North America still. So I, it's... I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I find it really telling that it is essentially the old guard that is rescuing this team at the moment. I suppose the one thing that, that really strikes me, Manu, is that the lack of a Bellingham replacement, like that's, that's a sort of two-sided point because on the one hand, you're not going to sign a technical replacement for him. It's just, you can't as, as Dorn, given where he was and how much money that player would have cost if such a player even existed. I think the Royce thing describes the fact that there's no sort of... Talisman is not quite the right word, but Bellingham wanted the ball. Bellingham wanted the responsibility for winning and losing games. And I don't think outside of Royce, who has done wonderful things in his career and has been a, a good player, very, very good player for a very long time, injuries aside, there's no one in that group of attacking players who'd say, you're the guy who... When, when the team is embattled, when the media is kind of turned against you, there's no one there that you think is really going to want the ball and is going to want to affect games. Like Brandt, brilliant player, not that guy as a sort of temperament-wise. Adeyemi, no. Marlin, no. Um, uh, Hilaire, no. Um, Fulkeri hasn't been there for long enough. Um, Chan, maybe, but he's not really... He's not... I mean... I don't know. I feel. I, I still feel like Chan is a little bit tainted by what happened at the end of last season because 
Um, I think he was excellent. He was one of the main reasons why Dortmund were in the position to win the title. At the same time, he is still highly culpable for what happened on the final season, on the final day of the season. It's just, you know, that's that's just the reality, and it's an unfortunate one, but it, it's still the case. And so, when you have a lack of attacking leadership, and I don't mean in the kind of chest thumping, shouting, breaking mirrors, and slamming doors sense. I mean in in a kind of like technical leader sense. Um, I think you have to you have to re- revert to a Royce type player who. Um, has a sort of a statesman-like quality within the Bundesliga and is admired by, you know, everyone who plays against him, of course. And it's sort of, it's it, it's, it, it's it depicts a failure to update your squad and to replace characters with characters and, and to replenish abilities in quite the right way. And it's it's lovely for Marco Royce to have a, a sort of a, a you know, a, a victory lap, I guess. But it's also quite worrying because, as you say, like, you're definitely not relying on Marco Royce for 34 games in this season now at this stage of his career. Mm, yeah, I think there's kind of two things there which are really fascinating to me. On the one hand, you've got the the personnel kind of dynamic here where, you know, it wasn't so long ago that there was a lot of discussion about whether Royce would even stay on this summer or in the summer. Um, and Terzic, and we said this at the time, I think Terzic probably does, I don't know why I've got so much time and credit for Terzic this week, but apparently I do. Um, it was, you know, the manner in which he was, he was able to keep Mats Hummels and Marco Royce in the squad without bruising any egos. And, you know, both players, you know, deserve some credit for accepting roles that they stepped in. Because how many examples can you think of where, you know, a really dynamic, you know, I don't even know. How, I mean, the best way to describe Royce to Dortmund is basically he's the poster boy. You know, he's the player that every Dort- young Dortmund fan has on their back. Uh, he was Dortmund for so many years. And how many examples can you think of in the modern era where a club captain like that is willing to hand on the armband and willing to step down and sit on the bench um, and, and, and do so quite happily without causing issues? So, you know, I think Dortmund, Royce and Terzic all deserve credit for that. But there's also a kind of tactical aspect to this, which is still, which is why the club are still crying out for Royce. And that's because the manner in which Dortmund tried to replace Bellingham, which was by, you know, bringing in Nemcha and Sabitzer, um... I think any hopes that those two players in particular were going to kind of step into kind of number 10 roles or maybe more dynamic number 8 roles has kind of suggested otherwise, or since then has kind of proved not to be the case, you know. I think Marcel Sabitzer still has a lot more to offer Dortmund, but he seems quite happy to kind of stay in that kind of number 6 role. Nemcha, I thought, looked a lot more comfortable sitting maybe 20 feet further back down the pitch um, against Hoffenheim than, than maybe Jude Bellingham would would be playing, which is, you know, basically off a striker. Um, and I think the issue there as well is that, you know, prior to Royce coming back into this team, you had uh, Emery Chan and maybe Sabitzer or Emery Chan and, and, and Nemcha as the two central midfielders and Julian Brandt in the front of them. But of course, Brandt, even though he's maybe technically a playmaker, maybe technically the number 10 in this team, he's he drifts out wide. That's the way he's, he likes to play, you know. And if you've got him playing alongside Adiemi and Daniel Malin, it basically means you've got two central midfielders who don't want to push forward and you've got three attack midfielders who all want to drift out wide. And I think that's largely why we saw Sebastian Haller looking so um, isolated for much of the start of the season. And, you know, I feel quite bad for Haller because he's been taken out of the team. Phil Krug has been put in, but perhaps more importantly, Phil Krug, Phil Krug has been put in with Royce, who's happy to play up there with the striker and play off the striker and you can tell that Phil Krug just really relishes playing these kind of one-twos with Royce having someone to run off um, which is just something that Haller never really had at the start of the season so you know there's a personal aspect which I think Dortmund has done well but as you guys said you know if Royce were to pick up an injury which let's be honest isn't that uncommon uh, Dortmund still don't really have someone like him to play in that number 10 role so you know, maybe that's something they'll have to really bear in mind um, in the January transfer window. Yeah, that is, that is something I think they need to address. Um, and I, I sense that 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 that, that is the plan. Um, you know, when you talk to people in and around the club, I think there, there is more coming in January. And I think that Sebastian Kiel, of course, the sporting director has has to increase his, wants to increase his profile and. Um, you know, he he is kind of he's kind of limited a little bit by Edin Tezic's power at the club. And I think the the two of them still kind of need to establish 
a hierarchy here, right? And I think that was one of the reasons why the summer window was such a disaster. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how, what's going to happen in January. I think what's, you know, on a positive note, um, maybe to sum up the Dortmund story with that, a, a couple of positive notes. I think Phil Cook was could prove to be a really, really good signing for them because Sebastian Haller is struggling so much, right, to start the season with. And so Phil Cook coming in, and Phil Cook is playing for... Um, a spot at the, at the for the Euro squad, right? Germany squad and Julian Nagelsmann, of course, was in stadium to watch it. Um, that is, I think, one positive there that I think Phil Cook is going to make a big difference for them. And then Bino Giddens was signed to a new long-term contract today. I want to mention that as well as a positive, right? I think that's really key for them to sign him because I think he is a player who could really make a next step um, this season. Um, but Stefan, talking about number nines, um, your newsletter last week got me really excited about this Hoffenheim number nine, Maximilian Bayer. Um, a rarity. It's it's almost like a unicorn, a German-born number nine who actually plays well in the Bundesliga. Um, wasn't his best game, but I think Hoffenheim, you know, they kept this really, really tight. And, you know, seeing that you wrote about him last week, I'm just curious, what were your takeaways from them? Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. We have we spent a lot of time talking about Dortmund, so it's worth pointing out that I thought Hoffenheim actually had a good game. Uh, they actually finished this the game with a higher XG than Dortmund. So you know, if you subscribe to that those kind of metrics, it's, I think it's a good way of pointing out that they they certainly had their chances. Um, they actually had 15 goal attempts compared to Dortmund's six, um, and. I don't think it's probably unfair to say that even for the Roy goal, I thought Bauman should have actually done much better with the save. For anyone who's missed it, it was basically, yeah, for, for anyone who missed it, it was basically a drilled-in cross towards his front post, and he kind of bobbles it, which allows Royce to kind of score that kind of iconic, almost like the Bundesliga logo, really, with this kind of scissor kick. Um, and then, of course, Rearson just kind of scores this crazy counter-attack when Hoffenheim are bombing forward. Um but yeah, you know, I'm really impressed with how Matras was done in that team. Um, I did point out in my newsletter that for all Hoffenheim's kind of intricate attacking systems and the way that Kramerich and Boyer have done really well this season, um, Bauman, the goalkeeper, has actually faced more shots than any other goalkeeper in the Bundesliga this season. That was prior to this weekend's football. I'm sure uh, he probably still holds that um, title. Um, and, you know, we saw with Brooks just kind of basically throw one in the net for Dortmund. So... I think there's probably um, attack defensive issues that Hoffenheim will have to iron out if they really have any ambitions this season. But yeah, that firepower um, going forward, and particularly Kramerich, who I think is just having already one of the best seasons he's maybe had at Hoffenheim. Um, one of the stats that I thought was really interesting was that prior to Friday's game, he already had 18 key passes for the season, which is a pass that leads to a shot more or less. Uh, and last season, for the whole last season, they only had about 31. So he's well on his way to passing that. And I think he just proves to be the perfect kind of playmaker for Boyer, who has already scored a great number of goals. And the the, the number, the, the, the type of goals he's scoring, uh, you know, whether it's a kind of like near front, a near post finish, or uh, he scored an absolute wonderful curling shot against Cologne, I think it was. Um, I think eventually. Yeah, sorry, of course. Um, and. You know, so we, we talked about it in the previous show, and I've, I've kind of waxed lyrically about it before, but he's a really interesting prospect. I think Hoffenheim will be fine if they can kind of keep these goals coming, but they might want to keep an eye on how to kind of fix that back line. Do you think the entire back line needs to be refitted? Like, that, that, that is my takeaway from the season so far, and I accept it's it's only October, um, only just into October. But I I think Brooks has been a good defender for a long time. Um, I don't think a back is good enough. Um, for this level of the game, personally, uh, Voigt maybe, but I, I, I think it just needs to be rethought. I think uh, there's something in the balance that's not quite right there. And individually, like individually, especially when you come up against a certain type of player, I think that they're hugely vulnerable. And I think Stefan, you, you hit the nail on the head. If the goals can keep going in, right, and um, it doesn't seem like the kind of level that they can sustain for another eight months. Um, and that would worry me. Um, I think, by the way, the, the Bauman point, um, we all agree that he should have done better. I think Bauman's had a really good 18 months, I think. Like, I like Bauman as a goalkeeper. I think he's worth his place in the, in the national team um, or in the squad itself. Um, 
but that defense it it particularly on the outside worries me um particularly against pace against rapid players in transition there's all kinds of yeah that doesn't make me feel very easy mm, yeah i think it's also worth mentioning that they spent a lot of money on shazalai Shaz- so i can't bloody speak um this, yeah and the summer and he actually hasn't really even had a shot yeah he's he had i think he's played maybe He's played forty five minutes against Freiburg and then he he actually played the full game in the in the three one win against Wolfsburg, but up until now Matarazzo has obviously picked the other players and I actually completely agree with you, Seb, you know, that entire back three, um, particularly Kabak and I think perhaps most notably Brooks. Um it's it feels it's, mean it, spirited it, to pick on Brooks, I have to say, because I think he's been a good player. But it just it's and it's not a reaction to his mistake. Um it's just it's not not quite right. It's not. It's not the player I want to build a defense around at this stage of his career. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I'd add as well is I think also Matrasso has been kind of chopping and changing his wing backs as well from game to game as well. So I don't think he's entirely convinced by them either. And Bebu, I mean, maybe it's been unfair to say he should have been doing better in like the 95th minute, and he did spend much of the game really throwing everything he had against Benzabaini. Um And for the most part, he did quite well actually, but. If you watch the replays, he kind of chases Wearson down for about 30 yards and then just kind of gives up. Um, that which, kind of goal's yeah. fate, though, isn't it? Like, if that, if that, yeah. if, if that kind of goal is <laughs> going to happen, something in the universe suggests that that is just what's going to happen. That's There's nothing that can interfere with that outcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, and I'm it's happy a give him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a kind of classic kind of winger thing. You, you see it for, at every level where they're like, well, I'll make some sort of effort to make the first tackle but i'm not a defender i'm not i'm not i'm not going to chase this guy down for 50 yards you know so and and, and, and you know what maybe it summed up hoff and i really well um where it's it's someone like bebu who's having to chase down the opposing fullback who scored but yeah i don't know i think hoffenheim will be okay but i completely agree with you said if they had to maybe fix something it definitely is in defense this episode of the gegen pressing podcast is brought to you by bet online football is back and BetOnline is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with all the up-to-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game mods, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with BetOnline's real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. From week one all the way to college football playoff and Super Bowl, BetOnline gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BELIEF, that is B-L-E-A-V, BELIEF, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Yeah, I think we're now at a really interesting point, right? Because like Dortmund, of course, win, um, which puts them even on points with Bayern Munich. Both have 14 that, that's the good news. The bad news is, unfortunately, there's two other teams that have been better than Bayern and Dortmund as well. And that's Leverkusen and Stuttgart. Leverkusen first still in the standings with 16 points. Stuttgart just don't want to go away. Um, although I did say in the preview show, I think if you have Gorilasi in your fantasy team, this week would have been a good week to sell him. He finally didn't score. Um, I think that was coming um expectedly coming and of course then i think too and i i this is really fascinating i actually you know leipzig now sitting in fifth place but you look at this match day and where leipzig is sitting and where bayern is sitting and dortmund are sitting i mean yes leverkusen for me leverkusen this year is a title candidate guys but like um Leipzig is as well, and Leipzig fantastic showing against Bayern Munich the first forty-five minutes. Then they had a really, really, really tough thirty minutes, and then had another like 10, 15 minutes where they almost looked like they were going to win this. This I don't even know what to call this um, heavyweight clash, Bundesliga clash. Um, Sepp, this match was highly anticipated, similar to the Bayern Leverkusen game, and it really delivered it had almost everything it was you know a great display for the Bundesliga overall I would say yeah I, I think I agree I mean I found it a little bit of a different experience to the Leverkusen Bayern game like I felt like Leverkusen Bayern was a sort of you got to watch both sides quality simultaneously throughout much of that game whereas on Saturday night it was a little bit more I think you saw Leipzig being as good as they could possibly be for most of the first half 
and then you saw their flaws a little bit after half time and you saw some of the vulnerabilities and you saw some of the reasons why I think a lot of us thought talented but not quite ready to be a sort of a a title contender in the way that Leverkusen I think almost certainly are um I was really impressed by a couple of little things here like um uh it's a bit easier to kind of criticize um Bayern and particularly Sven Ulreich I really love the way that Appenda took his goal um I know it was deflected but there's a little touch when he goes through and he it's the first touch that he takes away from Kim um which I think is so smart. And, and Appendix had a couple of moments this season where he's had some good moments and he's had some absolutely terrible ones. I, I, I always think back to that that miss against Leverkusen um, at the Bay Arena on the first day of the season. You think, God, that could, that could absolutely destroy someone's confidence. Um, but yeah, great finish. I thought Simons was a, just terrific again. Um, not that we, we thought otherwise, but like just week to week you just get more and more confirmation about how good he really is um and then i think um just as, as a last leipzig positive isn't it funny how at the end of a summer where they've lost probably more in one transfer period than at any other point in recent seasons actually one of the things that i'm left thinking about is their depth and the kind of the variations they have in different departments like particularly at forward um because that's really interesting like uh, i think um I don't think many of us thought that Paulson would have quite as much of a role as he has this season so far. What I've seen from Cisco is I saw him I saw him live for the first time in the Union game, um, down in Kopenick, and super impressed with with his contribution there. But God, he, he's just he's he's kind of terrifying in terms of not what he is now, but what you could imagine him becoming over the next few months and um, possibly years. I couldn't be more impressed with Leipzig. And Manny, you and I were um, together that night um, at the Super Cup when they just monstered their way through Bayern and were just outstanding in transition. And I think, um, you know, I've had a couple of ropey moments, but I think we saw the best of them here again, albeit um, Bayern being a couple of weeks further down the line, um, a little bit more cohesion, a couple of the agendas let go because the transfer window is shut and no one can do anything about them for a little bit um but yeah it, it was I, I also think it was kind of it was Bundesliga drama at, at its best which is what you want to see from these games and so far like the ones that attract international audiences like so Leverkusen it, they've delivered it's really really important because you, you get to see sort of not oh it's Leipzig against Bayern and Bayern end up winning 5-1 or something and, and everyone snarks from the UK or from underneath the kind of the Premier League umbrella also Leverkusen that Leverkusen game Leverkusen outplayed Bayern that night on their own pitch and should have won um, with a little bit more um, just a little bit more composure and a few right decisions in front of goal and, and so it was really the perfect night because it showed all of the good things and it showed enough Bayern vulnerability for people probably to buy into this season which is Really, really important. Um, before Stefan, before you jump on, I have a couple of quick thoughts here, and I, you might want to actually build on them, um, depending on what I'm going to say here. I thought it was really interesting how Thomas Tuchel changed his setup at halftime. Um, he brought on Guerrero for Goretzka, that that gave them more structure in midfield, and then uh, Tal came on for Coman, which gave them more directness in the attack. And I thought those were two changes that were that really paid off for them, and they gave them a lot more power um, to really tackle this Leipzig side that worked extremely hard in the first forty-five minutes. Um, it was a clear penalty. I have to first of all have to say that Benjamin Henry's what whatever he was thinking, or maybe he probably wasn't thinking, but that was a clear penalty. But it was also a little bit of a fortunate situation because if the Bayern don't get that penalty, I think they can push and push and push as much as they want. I don't think they get that they, they get that equalizer after all, right? And I thought it was really interesting that Rosa didn't really react with any of his substitutions until it was two two, and this is one of those rare moments I think where he maybe got it wrong because Leipzig all of a sudden got their footing back into this game after um, Baumgartner arrived for Forsberg and then Szeszko coming on for Paulsen. And when Szeszko came on, it looked almost like towards the end that Leipzig could win this. And I thought maybe all the substitutions came a little too late. 
and like either one of you jump in here and think you can call me called bullshit or say okay well this is correct but like that's at least how i felt about this no i i, I completely get where you're coming from I, th I think the momentum of the game definitely swung into barnes favor in the second half um I thought Leipzig were outstanding in the first half. Actually, do you know what? Before I even get into this, I just want to quickly say that I was unable to watch this game live um, because I was traveling. Uh, a good friend of mine's leaving uh, for New Zealand, so I had to go to his leaving night. Um, but I was driving across the country, and because Sky Sports put this game on YouTube, I was able to listen to the commentary through YouTube through my car, uh, which is a kind of nice alternative to you know radio commentary. And... I was even more forced because Kevin Hatchard was on the YouTube fight feed because it was the tactical feed. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and and I just want to give him a quick shout out. I just want to give him a quick shout because I couldn't watch the game, but just listening to his commentary, especially from the tactical perspective, was more than enough for me to keep a good kind of um, grasp of what was going on. Uh, I then watched the game back today in full, and I was really struck by how well Leipzig done. Um, I think first and foremost they. They, 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 they made sure that Harry Kane was completely cut off from his Bayer team. I've actually wrote my newsletter on Kane in particular because I think this is now the third game following the Leverkusen and Man United games where Bayern have come up against better teams. Well, not, not better teams than them, but good quality teams. And in each instance, I've actually thought Harry Kane's had a very poor game. I thought he was a complete bystander in this. I thought he was a complete bystander in this game entirely. Um to the extent that he only actually... His first touch in the opposing box came in the 47th minute, which was offside. Uh, if you take his penalty out of the equation, his XG is zero for this game. And so, yeah, and, and, and look, I'm not blaming him entirely for this because I think Leipzig specifically set up. If you look at their pass maps for the game, uh, Bayern are just passing it back and forth down the wings. And I've actually kind of come to realize this season that if you want if you if you want to know if Bayern are having a good season or not or a good game or not, you can tell by how far out Leroy Sané is having to go to get the ball. And for much of this game, he was out so far wide. Um, and actually, I'd, I'd add Jamal Musiala really to that kind of list of disappointments, at least in the first half, because he was also entirely cut off. I know he had that opportunity in the first couple of minutes, but um, you know that was obviously maybe just a hiccup. And but on the whole. I actually thought in open play, Leipzig actually had Bayern's number. I think that was a testament to the fact that the only way that Bayern got back in was through the handball and the penalty. And then, of course, their second goal came away from a counter-attack from a corner up the other end, which, ironically, was set up through a Harry Kane header in his own box. So he did contribute some way. Um, but yeah, and, and so I thought that maybe explains why Rosa didn't want to change anything. I think he probably saw on the pitch that, all things being equal, they were doing a good job of shutting Bayern down. Uh, I think maybe two things that changed the match tactically, match tactically in the second half was Kevin Campbell having to come off from injury because I thought him and uh, Schlager in the middle of the park were just in incredible. It's probably the best I've maybe seen Schlager play in a, in a Bayern top. And he actually seems to really, in a Bayern top, sorry, in a Leipzig top, uh, I think he really thrives in these big games because I remember watching him against Real Madrid last season as well and he was tremendous in that too. Um, Campbell played out of his skin and then obviously Seavalt comes on and I, I, he, I just don't think it was... It's obviously a really tough game for a central midfielder to come on and immediately get themselves built up to that intensity, at least of all for obviously a young talent. Um, and then I think Guerrero coming on was the big difference for Bayern as well. I think in the first half, more often than not, Goreska was the midfielder sitting and Kimmich was the player pushing forward. And in the second half when Guerrero came on, Guerrero was pushing up far further forward and Kimmich kind of slotted back into that kind of quarterback role. And I think that really helped disrupt Leipzig a lot because um, because Guerrero can 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 track and, tr and 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 chase opposing players down far more than maybe Kimmich can in the final third, and that seemed to really disrupt Leipzig. Um, and yeah, I mean, and and the only other thing I would add is that I thought Upamecano was once again dreadful. Um, I think if you watch that, I think if you watch that first goal back for Leipzig, the way that Openda comes short for the throw in. Uh, he gets he gets tracked by uh, Upamecano to the point where Upamecano actually cuts across Kim uh, at least on the halfway line. Um, Openda doesn't get the ball, but so Upamecano just kind of stops tracking him. But Openda then turns and makes a run, which is the one that's through the middle of the defence and the one that Kim then has to follow and chase him down, uh, which 
really goes to show how fast Kim actually is that he was able to kind of catch up with the pen down on a, probably a 10 yard disadvantage um, can, I, can, I, can I criticize Kim a little bit because like, I agree like I, I, I've marveled at what a good athlete he is I really didn't like the way that he responded to the deflection of the goal going in by having a bit of a go at Ulreich because I, I know Ulreich's limitations are but also I think Kim's technique at the point at which he makes the challenge is quite poor having got himself into position and let's face it um um, a pender is rapid so well done I don't think that's great defending when he actually gets there um, and do you think he's shouting at Ulrich or do you think he's turning around and shouting at Meccano I thought he was turning around kind of I don't even know if he was shouting at Ulrich but it seemed like he just kind of turned around and he was facing towards Meccano just kind of maybe a generic moan which might have been in, Ul- in Ulrich's face because he was the guy standing beside him maybe, maybe. you could well be right but I also think like whatever the other issues in that move that allowed it to develop, I don't think Kim covered himself in glory. And I think there have been a few occasions this season when, and let's be fair to him, like in some instances, he's reacting to a bit of the dysfunction, not just alongside him, but ahead of him. We know what the issues are with the um, the lack of the holding six. Um, but I, I, I just didn't, didn't think that that was, a, that was a terribly good piece of recovery defending. Um, also, because I... I, I I, I feel um, a weird need to defend Sven Ulrich at all times just because I, I think he's he gets such a raw deal. Cause he's, he's, you know, he, he's playing at a level that, that's beyond him and he's there because of, I think, what he represents socially. That intervention um, that stopped Sesko jumping around him at the end, that takes balls, frankly, to, to, to do that in, at that stage of a game when you've already made an absolute howler to give away one goal. I just think that's... It's kind of a good example of how mentality is important to goalkeeping and it's a great intervention. It stops a goal. Um, so, yeah. Can I also, while I'm while I'm hogging the microphone and um, boring on, the Kane thing, the Kane thing interests me because he's having to try and insert himself into moves. Nothing's really being built around him. The one thing I noticed from this game that I really liked from an attacking sense from Bayern is Mizziala has... I know we associate Mizziala with... Um, being on the ball and and you know playing probably from that sort of left of the box position sometimes and scheming and that kind of stuff i really like his vertical runs maziala and i really like him when he that when um he's kind of uncomplicated in that sense and will just go beyond and up to the defensive line or the other way around up to and beyond um and i think that's starting to work a little bit with kane obviously not in a way that barma wanted to yeah but um, that was very interesting to see, and I, I, I've, I've always felt that there can be a sort of um, uh, Dele Ali type relationship between those two, like the one that Kane enjoyed with with Ali when he was when he was a much younger player, um, and before um, you know um, Dele's drop off in form. Mazzola um, is a more gifted player, and I've always thought that if you could if you could dovetail those two and develop a real chemistry. That could be a real partnership. And we, we haven't really seen that because of Messiola's injury, but um, I'm really excited to see what becomes of that going forward. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because at the start of the season, I thought that would be what Leroy Sani did. And he has done it to the extent, I thought him and Kane um, linked up really well, for example, in that Werder Bremen game. But what I was thinking when I was watching this match, and I was trying to figure out why Bayern couldn't really click into gear and attack, was that I think maybe the issue is that um, Leroy Sani as a player... Um, you know he's he's just he's as fast as anyone, but he's he's at his core a player who he's almost like an old-fashioned winger where he wants you to give him the ball on the touchline, and he wants to run with the ball past the defender. That's that's just what he wants. He wants the ball at his feet, then he'll do his running. He's not really the kind of player who will make that fifty-yard run and hope that the ball gets played over his shoulder, like maybe a Serge Gnabry or as you said, the way that Musiala is developing in that role, and. I felt like because the way that Leipzig really crowded that middle of the park, um, it meant that Leroy Sadio, who's maybe ideally would, would get the ball passed to him in that kind of just in front of the kind of semicircle in front of the box, he's getting the ball past him 50 yards further away on the sideline. And maybe Bayern lacked, um, they lacked in, in more runners in that sense. You know, I guess Musiala can kind of do that, but I think that's maybe one of, someone like Serge Gnabry's more notable or maybe more indiscreet talents in this team where he's willing to make those runs that Leroy Sani isn't really willing to make. And I think that's maybe something that Guerrero offered when he came on where he's just happy to just 
sometimes aimlessly just make runs and just kind of shake things up a bit and break the line. Um, whereas Sani, almost to an extent like Arjen Robin, actually, I thought he looked a lot more like him in the sense where he's like, I want the bo- I want the ball out wide. I'm going to stand here till you give me the ball, and then I'm going to be- then I'm going to be this defender. And it's the complete opposite, if you will, from the other side of the scale, which is where you'd have someone like Thomas Muller, where 99% of his game is based on off the ball. Um, so I think that's a really interesting dynamic that Tuchel's still trying to figure out because I did kind of think during this match, I was like, hmm, Sani's done really well this season when he's played as that number 10, but when you slot Musiala in there, suddenly Sani's effectiveness is maybe not as, 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 as clear. Yet he scored that goal, right? I mean, that that's. I actually think that Leroy Sané is playing his best season at Bayern so far um, since he's joined, um, and probably his best season since that that yeah, year that he won, like that Rookie of the Year or whatever they have in the Premier League um, and Man City. Remember that? I think we're actually seeing that player finally. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's a fascinating discussion because like. What do you do with Harry Kane when he becomes isolated, right? And like that. And I'm really curious to see your newsletter this week about this, Stefan, because it is something that I've noticed as well. And I think smart teams like Leipzig are going to figure this out. And there, there is several teams in the Bundesliga this year that play very good football, right? And so I think that Tuchel, Tuchel has to find a solution here. And I think he has to find a solution in many places in the squad because like, we have I, I, we've been criticizing Dortmund for not being convincing, but we can say the exact same thing about Bayern Munich this year. Yeah, and it's not just an attack; it's in defense where the Ligt is still kind of out in the cold, and which is bizarre because I'm not entirely sure if McCannell's really covered himself in glory this season. So, yeah, it's it's and not to mention Conrad Leimer starting at right back. It's a very I don't know, Seb. I'd be interested in what you think about this because obviously you know you were quite closely watching him maybe at Chelsea and how he somehow managed to make sense of that troubled squad. Do you think he can do the same as Bayern team? <laughs> it's it's a really good question because the Messi inherited at Chelsea was far greater than this one. Um, I almost feel like at times Tickle's kind of indulged the politics of the Bayern situation a bit too much. Um, I don't know whether that just reflects my saturation in Bayern Munich coverage living in Germany, but that is how it's felt. It's like he's. It's very clear to see where the, where the issues are in that squad and where the fault lines are at the club itself. And Tuchel has kind of put him, made himself vulnerable unnecessarily, which is very very weird. Um, I think one of the things that surprises me is the the thing that he fixed at Chelsea, and I'll always remember this: is he inherited a squad that would were as were, who were as vulnerable as I've ever seen on the counter attack. Lampard's Chelsea were just a disaster in terms of things like rest defense and attacking in a responsible way and and he fixed that and it's kind of now if you look at what Bayern's biggest vulnerability is I'd argue it's that right that you just can't you can't set up attacking possession football in a way that allows well that that doesn't take away the peril <laughs> and the two times this season that they've played at Leipzig and of course you you know, who do you associate most with vertical football in the Bundesliga? Well, RB Leipzig. Um, they've just looked so naive and as if as if they've set up to face Augsburg or, you know, a, a sort of a more of a, a, a deep-lying side. Um, so it's very, very strange. And whilst I accept that there are technical shortages, I don't understand why he isn't able to why he isn't able to alleviate some of these issues to a greater degree it, it baffles me i'm not the most advanced tactical person i it i, I truth be told it just bores me too much <laughs> but i look at the players and i look at sort of i understand that there's no six there there's no natural six at the same time um he should be able to forge a midfield out of what he has even if that means altering a few players roles and getting them to be um a little bit more static than they might otherwise like to be. I think that defence should be better. I think he has the tools to um, not just field uh, two really, really high quality full slash wingbacks, um, but to be able to have, well, on the left side, to do it with two different players in two different ways. Like obviously Davies and Guerra are very, very different sort of left-sided players, but 
with that utility comes the option to to kind of maneuver your way around the league as you go through games and Guerra's um, worth was shown in this match we've talked about that already so I don't understand why it doesn't work better than it is and I'm, I'm all ears as to justifications and reasons I just I, I think he's um, and I Manny that 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 night of the Super Cup when he did that very Thomas Tuchel thing of when it goes badly he sort of shrugs his shoulders on live television as he's done this before you know, Chelsea he's done it before at Bayern and it's kind of like, well, I've just got no answers at all. And you're watching it and you think, okay, well, if you have no answers, who 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 is in charge of the answers? Who who's supposed to come up with them? Who's 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 leading the tactical diagnosis of this team's flaws? Um, because I watched the Manchester United game and I tell you what, Manchester United are awful. Like not not just not not good for Man United within their context, either they're just not a good football team. They're getting played off the pitch regularly by Premier League, very, very, very ordinary Premier League teams. And Bayern Munich conceded three times to them at home, right? And carelessly, and and they did not rip through them in the way that they should have done. And and it's so underwhelming at the moment. And it's very telling. We started this pod by talking about like the lack of system at Dortmund. I think it's very telling that we're talking about like the value of Leroy Sané as Iron Robin because. He has to be like that at the moment, I think. Um, we're talking about the kind of the extra onus on Joshua Kimmich because um, we're looking for him to play hero passes and for him to be, uh, well, for him to sort of dictate play from areas where he's not that comfortable. Like a lot of this stuff is not, it lacks the mechanical um, feeling that Bayern give you when they're really, really playing well. And this group of players should be able to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it, you, you pointing out Thomas Tuchel's role at the club, right? Um, I think a lot of the shoulder shrugging comes down to also him not getting the players that he wanted. And I, I think for better or worse, it's probably actually better that he didn't get the players that he wanted because um, the overarching structure at a club like Bayern Munich was always that the coach didn't sign the players. And I think that... Uh, I mean, we haven't even talked about Max Eberl and Jerome Boateng and all that other stuff. And I think that is something for the transfer show later on this week, Stefan. We need to discuss that, right? But um, the the way things are going, um, I think that Tuchel's power is going to be less going forward, not more. And um, I wonder what that will do to him when it, when when results don't go right and I think the club is expecting him to find tactical solutions rather than um, playing football manager and trying to sign players that he thinks could fix it right he they want him to work with what what's there because that's all, always how it's been at Bayern Munich and to be honest with you guys I think there is enough there to make it work and um, and this is maybe my final point because we're getting close to the end right but I actually wonder if you would have these structural problems and tactical problems at Bayern Munich at the moment if you, Julian Nagelsmann was still in charge. Because I think not. I think that Nagelsmann would probably have found a solution for these problems. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's maybe the final point before we wrap things up, but you could make an argument that this team that Tuchel has inherited is now having to rebuild itself for the third time in as many years after Julian Nagelsmann tried to break it down and rebuild it and Hansi Flick had to break it down and rebuild it um, so you know I think there's that argument to be made I think there's maybe also some there's uh, maybe there's such an intangible thing but there's also the point that you know um, with Tuchel it felt to me like at Chelsea that um, you know he was just so relieved to get that job after what happened at PSG um, that he was willing to just kind of really do what he could and go with the flow. And, you know, he felt so, he, he it felt like he really grasped at that opportunity as well as he could. And, you know, there's all these kind of jokes about him showing up and he didn't have any clothes to wear. So he was just kitted out in whatever that was in the club shop. And, you know, he was, he was, he was, the, he was just delighted to be at Chelsea. Whereas, it feels to me like when you got appointed at Bayern, he was doing them a favour, you know, and it felt like, you know, the club had mucked up with Julian Nagelsmann. They had egg on their face because they'd made him the most expensive head coach ever and then sacked him 12 months later. 
And it felt like, and, and obviously a large part of this is because obviously Tuchel is German and he cut his teeth in the Bundesliga and he was he was considered this tactical marvel in the Bundesliga. It felt to me like he was like, all right, I'll come. I know he's already in Munich at the time and living in Germany, but it felt to me like he's like, okay, I'll come back to the Bundesliga and I'll do Bayern a favor because, you know, it's convenient for me this time. So I think there were just two very different kind of um, points of view from Tuchel in, in, in both jobs. And that maybe explains why he has perhaps been more flippant or been more, you know, um, unwilling to... Maybe he doesn't feel like he has to prove himself at Bayern like he did at Chelsea. Maybe that's the best way of putting it. I don't know, Seb, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, I always thought that kind of um, inheriting a squad from Frank Lampard was a bit of a privilege for him in the sense that um, there was so much wrong uh, under Lampard and that German core was not happy with Lampard. So when Thomas Tuchel comes in, he immediately has the attention of the class, so to speak. Um, in addition to which, like... Um, I know they represent different things, but, um, you know, uh, I would say Tuchel and Nagelsmann in different ways are kind of high priests of the game. That's not Frank Lampard, is it? So instead of going from one technical direction to another, you're going really from one approach to another at Chelsea. And um, I think there was a sort of, uh, gratitude isn't quite the right word, but I think the players at Chelsea were probably, it was probably more of a relief for Tuchel to walk through the door with a suitcase or otherwise we don't know with unconfirmed stories about that um and to bring system football with him i think and security we, we've already talked about counter-attacking football and, and what he allowed them to do and and how he allowed them to kind of um to stop being broken against and you know um the, i remember there's one really awful game right at the end of frank lampard's um, time at Chelsea when they were they were three 0 down to West Brom away from home and they they got back to three three but it was just absolute chaos. And I remember thinking, Tuchel comes in, and if you're able to kind of calm and um, resolve that chaos, you'll have the players behind you. Whereas inheriting a team from Nagelsmann is a completely different, completely different situation. Not necessarily like you know I'm not, I'm not comparing those two, but it's just the transition is more complicated. I would say in terms of what you're asking the players to be doing and. Um, the different approaches you're asking them to 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 adapt to, um, so it's really interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like the, the, also, Chelsea, Chelsea. I, I, obviously, we all know about sort of the political element of Bayern Munich. Chelsea is its own battle um, and its own situation. And what you don't have is you don't you have a lot of silence at the top of the club. Less so when the sale went um, through and Todd Bowley came in and, and did the things that Todd Bowley has done in, in the months and years since. But you don't have this this sort of this uh, aristocratic class of, um, you know, former board member, current board member, um, former great players. You don't have the same media focus. You don't have the commentary on what you're doing every single week. It just doesn't work like that at Chelsea. Um, whereas at Bayern... It feels like from day one, Tickle's been needled by everything. Absolutely everything. He seems like quite a neurotic, sensitive person anyway, but it, it does feel as if he's he's particularly susceptible to to kind of certain the things that you find in the in the Bayern Munich atmosphere. Um so it's quite a yeah, it's a strange thing. Like I mean, this is this is someone that kind of had kind of personal issues at, at Borussia Dortmund. So with the greatest respect, if you struggle at Borussia Dortmund with some of the characters there might have a bit of an issue about Munich now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is a, a hugely fascinating topic and uh, I think we can discuss it for the entire rest of the season. Unless Thomas Tuchel, of course, gets sacked, which um, would mean an emergency podcast. Um, guys, unfortunately, we're out of time, so I need to wrap this up. Um, as always, the show is brought to you by Bet Online. Uh, Sepp, Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I know people can find you at The Athletic. Um, what else have you been up to? Yeah, nothing else really, man. <laughs> just, just The Athletic these days and uh, doing bits and pieces. Um, I've got a couple of interesting Bundesliga projects, which I can't describe more than that, but it should be out in about two or three weeks. A few interviews, a few features. They were going to come out sort of middle to late October, so they'll be on the Athletic when they when they when they land. Awesome stuff. 
Well, Stefan, let's wrap this up now. Um, we'll be back, of course, with the the Champions League wrap up, uh, the transfer show. Lots of topics on that one this week, um, and yeah, the preview show later this week. Enjoy the Champions League. We'll be back soon. Until then, auf Wiedersehen. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.